Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. The video looks phenomenal. See, this difference between Black Star Network and Black-owned media and something like CNN. You can't be Black-owned media and be scared. It's time to be smart. Bring your eyeballs home. You dig? Today is Friday, January 28th, 2022. Coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered right here on the Black Star Network. A Pittsburgh bridge collapses on the day. President Joe Biden is scheduled to visit the city to talk infrastructure. Oh, did y'all know that the Republican senator from Pennsylvania voted against that particular bill? Yet he was tweeting about how they were in contact with the people who were impacted. Hmm. All right, folks, uh, lies sent a black Pennsylvania man to prison for 37 years. Now he's out and suing the city that put him behind bars. A Tennessee man is shot and killed by nine cops. It's on video. We'll show you the tragic shooting. Why aren't they arrested? Plus, there was another woman found dead on December 12th in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Uh, we told you about Lauren Smith Fields, but another family did not find out until days after their loved one, Brenda Rawls, was dead. The president of the Greater Bridgeport NAACP joins us tonight. He'll tell us what they are doing uh, to demand action from city officials. The National Black Farmers Association president is calling out PepsiCo for what he calls ongoing discrimination. John Boyd will explain what promises he says has been broken by PepsiCo. We also have their response. A retiring GOP Texas senator admits under oath that Texas violated voting rights law during the redistricting uh, process. He literally signs it. We'll have the Texas Legislative Black Caucus member tonight to tell us what that means. Also in our Education Matters segment, we'll take a look at the importance of tutoring. Folks, it is time to bring the funk. I'm Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. Let's go. He's got it. Whatever the miss, he's on it. Whatever it is, he's got the scoop, the fact, the fine. And when it breaks, he's right on time. And it's rolling. Best believe he's knowing. Putting it down from sports to news to politics. With entertainment just for kicks, he's rolling. Yeah. It's Uncle Roro, y'all. 
folks, the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, they're looking into the fatal shooting uh, that took place involving nine police officers. Now, let me warn you before uh, we show you this video. It is extremely disturbing. It is triggering. Uh, if you need to turn away, please do so right now. Uh, this video went viral yesterday when uh, it was published uh, when someone shot video from their phone. Folks, again, it shows you the type of actions we see all too often from police and how they respond to situations. Now, here's the, so I'm going to go ahead and play the video right now. Just drop it, brother. Let me help. You. Let, land it, come on. Land it, come on, brother. Let, let me help you out. You will not end up in jail. Landon, look, hey, look at me, look at me, Landon, look at me. No, don't do it, don't do it. Do not do it, brother. Landon, don't let me, don't let me go home with this today, brother, please. Come on. Landon. Landon, look at me, brother, I'm talking to you, hey. Please. I gave you my word. My word means something, okay? I keep it. You will not go to jail today. I promise you, you will not go to jail today. Whatever you're worried about, we can fix it. Let's get you some help, though. This is not the answer. You and I know it. You don't want to. You don't want to hurt me. I know you don't. And you know I damn sure don't want to hurt you. Right? Come on, brother. Just put your hand up, drop the knife, and let's figure this out. Landon, come on, brother. Let's do the right thing here, okay? Let's get, let's get you some help, brother, please. That's all we're asking, bro. No, don't, Landon. No, don't do it, Landon. No. Back up a little bit. Back up a little bit. Landon. Don't, don't do this, bro. Seriously, Let's end it, Landon. Just drop the knife, brother. Let's help you out. Let's go home. Landon, don't please, brother. Come on, come on, man. Hey, I've been out here for 30 minutes talking to you, bro. Let's go home. Let's go home, Landon. Please drop it, brother. This is not the answer. You know, I don't want to hurt you. Come on, Landon. Landon, don't. Hey, we don't want to hurt you. We don't want to shoot you, and you don't want to hurt us. Right? I got kids to go to. I got a family to go home to. And I was on my way doing that. But if my God put me here so I can help you out today. And you know it. And you, you damn sure know it. I know it. Come on, brother. Just drop it. Landon, please, brother, don't do this. Please don't. Please. You've been talking to me the whole time, brother. Please. Do it for me. I give you my word, I, I will help you out. Okay. Look, he take them off. Come on, brother. That makes you feel better. Take the sunglasses off. No big deal. My sunglasses off. Eye to eye. I've been talking, brother. Look, I don't even have a damn vest on. And I still stopped in the interstate because I want I want you to go home today. I don't want you to end up dead inside the interstate. Nobody wants that. This folks right here, they got kids in the cars. Look at that, kids over there just sitting by. That don't don't give them that show, brother. Okay, please. They're gonna have to live with this too. Not just me and you. 
please. Just drop it, brother. That's all you got to do. I promise you. Get your hand out of your pocket. Drop the knife. And I'll guarantee you, I will have an ambulance here to help you out. You will not go to jail if that's what you're worried about. Come on, Landon. Please. Help me help you. That's all I'm asking for. Come on, brother. Just drop the knife. Get your hand out of your pocket. If that's a gun, what you got in there? Don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. We'll fix it. I'm not too worried about that right now. I'm worried about you. I'm worried about you, Landon. Come on, brother. Just drop it. Come on. I know you can do it. I know you want to do the right thing here. And this is your chance. Landon. Come on, brother. Landon, please, brother, don't do it. Don't do it. No, no, no. No, Landon. Okay, y'all. So, 37-year-old, uh, land. No, pull that step back up. I'm gonna talk over this. Okay, pull that shot back up. No, that ending shot, uh, that wide shot from the second, uh, the second angle. 37-year-old uh, Landon uh, Eastep was sitting on a guardrail along Interstate 65 Thursday afternoon when a state trooper approached him. Eastep became agitated. Police tried, as you heard, to try to de-escalate the situation for more than 30 minutes, uh, but then the suspect they pulled out a silver object out of his pocket. Thinking it was a gun, nine officers opened fire, including members of the Nashville Metro Police Department and Highway Patrol. That silver object turned out to be a box cutter. Now, here's why. So uh, let me bring in a panel. Michael Imhotep hosts the African History Network show, Kelly Bethea, communication strategist, Matt Manning, civil rights attorney. Okay, so, uh, I will, so please bring this shot back up. So Matt, I want to start with you. This is the problem that I have in situations like this, okay? You've got nine cops surrounding this guy. You've got significant distance between him and the officers. Now, what I don't understand, and this is just me, what I don't understand why the officers don't have their cars there and why they are not standing behind their cars. So you, he reaches into his pocket. You don't know what he pulls out. Here's what I don't understand. Does the law say that if I reach into my pocket and pull something out, that mean, means cops get to shoot? Should they not? ascertain what's being pulled out of the pocket? So, I mean, I keep saying, death is death. It's nine cops. So he pulls something out. You don't know what he's pulling out. So you unleash nine cops firing bullets into the guy when, in fact, he's pulling something out. He's not charging at you at all. Clearly, he's agitated. So, does, it, does this even make sense? 
I don't think this makes sense from the standpoint of the overwhelming force with the nine officers who were there, especially because in a circumstance like this, this is a prime example of where a police department should call what's called a crisis intervention team or some other team where they believe there's a nexus with mental health to help de-escalate and get the person help. Um, I will say, though, uh, maybe being devil's advocate here, when I read the article that corresponds to this video, it, it indicated to me that he actually had the box cutter out at some point before. Now, that doesn't mean they shouldn't have been behind their cars. It doesn't mean this is necessarily proper police procedure. But there, there is a body of thought that if you have a weapon, you can close distance relatively shortly. And I think it's important to know whether that box cutter was out or whether it was actually what was pulled out of his pocket. Uh, because in that respect, I mean, generally, the law allows officers who are in fear of their life to use deadly force if they believe they're being faced with deadly force. And under a circumstance like this, where he's pulling something unknown out of his pocket, um, I, I do think that there's at least a legal question about whether they would reasonably be using that deadly force. I know that's not what people want to hear, but that's the reality of how this will be construed. Um, but I do think that if he already had the box cutter in his hand, then I think all your points are are definitely valid, considering they're so far away from him, there's no way he could have closed distance, which would make this wholly excessive and wholly unreasonable to use a firearm when somebody's further than 20 feet away with you from you with a box cutter in their hand. So but, but, that's what I see here, and I think that's important to know. But Kelly, this is precisely why people who say defund the police say you don't send cops in situations like this, you send professionals who can talk someone out. You hear the officer. Now, look, I, the officers were saying the right things. They were pleading with him. He said, we've been here for more than 30 minutes. You mean to tell me you didn't have enough time to say, hey, get a mental health professional out here? Get, some, get a hot, you know, you have hostage negotiators whose first thing is you don't fire. So you, you're surrounded by nine cops. You've got the guy blocked in. I, I, again, he's dead. You can't go back and, and undead somebody. They're dead. It, you're exactly right. But for me, it, it goes beyond just you could have called somebody. You could have done this. You could have done that. It, it's while it appears that they did everything they could, quote unquote, there are several layers to this that just were not addressed. They had tasers on their bodies, from my understanding, and they were never deployed. The fact that he brought a gun, uh, I'm sorry, a knife to a gunfight, quite literally, it, it wasn't even a gunfight. That looks like a firing squad to me. That looks like a firing squad. And while they're saying the right things, look at their positioning in that video. While it was incredibly hard to watch, I, I felt like I had to so I could make some form of comment. It did not look like a situation in which even the the suspect being this man would feel safe enough to surrender when the cars are that far back when they've cleared out the area when you are basically surrounded but for guardrail with of officers ready to kill you this is not a situation in which i would feel safe to do any anything like i i do not understand why it is so hard for officers of, of any color at this point to actually bring themselves to a point of, of, of relating to the suspect such that they do not fear 
the, the skin color of this man, because I guarantee you there are instances in this country where the person, where a white person will have a gun, where there's a hostage actually involved and they get home or they are able to be arrested. All we're saying in these videos, all every pundit who's gonna be talking about this, at the end of the day, just arrest somebody like they're white if, if that is how you have to conceive it and perceive it. Arrest them like they're white and make sure that- well, 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 First of all, this guy is white. First of, all, the, the, first of all, this guy here, he was white. But the, the thing that- I couldn't tell. Yeah, the, 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 guy, the guy here was white. The thing, Michael, that, uh, that is still, death is the last option. Right. Lethal force is the last option. There are nine cops. If each cop fires one bullet, he's hit nine times. I, look at this. You're talking about you know, you're a great, even if the man, go back to the, even if the man pulls something out of his pocket, don't you have to ascertain what it is? I mean, we've heard these examples before, somebody, you know, they, they reach their pocket, they pull a cell phone out. That's what a cop say, no sudden moves. But again, I go back to, if I've got, if, if I've got cars surrounded, and, and I've got, and, and I'm gonna use the perfect example this is where I have a problem. Mm. So we talk about the death of uh, Michael Brown in Ferguson, but a lot of people might forget that a few weeks after Michael Brown's death, Kojima Powell was shot and killed by St. Louis cops. Right. Mentally unstable brother. Mm -hmm. And it was 16 seconds from the moment the cops arrived and opened the door to the first shot that went out, that, that was fired. I, I'm gonna play this video again. It's triggering, folks. If you want to move away, please turn away. To Kelly's point, why are you not using tasers? In this case, they said there was a butter knife in his hand or a steak knife. When they called 911, they said, mentally disturbed man. That apparently wasn't relayed to the police officers who arrived. But again, just like, just like this situation here, I need people to understand, and I want, I want to see how the cops sort of operate. So I'm going to play this here, so watch this. So now the police going to pull up. Y'all call the police? He's bagging up. He got his gun out. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. They got their guns out. Oh, they just killed this man. Damn. Guy yells, shoot me now, MF. Cops roll up. They step away from their car. He steps towards them. They unload. Again, I'm not a cop. But this is how I think. This is just me. Can we go wide? This is just me. If something is happening, if something is happening, switch, switch, 
Something is happening. If you're, if you are across, if you are across, let's say, like where the camera is, I'm not gonna walk around here. I'm not gonna walk around here and stand in front of you. This is just me. I'm probably gonna stand behind something that creates some distance between me and you. So if you try to come at me, the table's blocking. The cops there roll up, they get out of the car. 16 seconds. Mm-hmm. Seven shots fired, he's dead. I'm like, seriously, that's, and guess what? The law says if they believe their life is being threatened, they get to actually open fire. These cops in Tennessee are probably going to be, uh, get away with this, say that no, not, right. they follow all procedures, they try to talk to the guy, try to calm the guy down, but he's dead. This is where you've got to have police departments who they've got to change how they respond to mental health situations. Yeah, I, I agree, Roland. That was, that was the first uh, note that I uh, made dealing with this case. Did they call uh, a mental health expert to the scene? You, you heard the uh, officer. Now, the video clip is from Metro Nashville police officer Jason Kidd's body cam uh, footage. Uh, you heard uh, when the police officers say, we've been here 30 minutes or so, something like that. So um, I'm wondering, okay, did you call to negotiate? It's clear, it's clear that there's some type of mental distress. Secondly, looking at the piece uh, on this from the USA Today, uh, his name was uh, Landon Estep, uh, Estep, the person who was killed. Uh, he had his right hand in his pocket throughout the negotiation and held what appeared to be a small black object in his left hand. So when the uh, one, I, secondly, I would think that they would move the cars in front of them to take cover as well, as you said, Roland. I would think they would take that precaution because you don't know if he has a gun or not. Yeah, the, the guy but, says, I got no vest. Well, if I'm standing, if I'm standing behind the car, I'm standing yeah. behind the door, if he pulls something out, I should be able to say, hey, identify what that is. It's nine cops. Right. If he right. tries to, if he takes five steps, I got enough time, enough firepower to take him down. To Kelly's right. point, nine cops, nobody got a taser? Right. So, right. so, so uh, your, your first resort, and this is why you don't call cops in a situation, because their first resort is the gun. And, and they yeah. are trained, shoot to kill, not to wound, to kill. Um, so there's, um, to Matt's point, there's something called a 20, 21 foot rule. If you go through training with guns or something like that, handguns, CPL, you learn about this. The average person can reach you, can, can cover 21 feet in a, in a second and a half. So, um, there's, you know, I want to hear some use of force experts, uh, deal with this, and I want to see what the uh, statements are coming from the uh, Nashville Police Department. But I, I think there were some steps that were missed here. I've never been in law enforcement before, but I've covered a number of these cases. I think there were some steps that were missed here. Well, I'm telling you, if it, well, first, I'm, I'm telling you right now, they're going to get clear. Matt, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to play one more before I go to the break of my next story. Se Dallas, Texas. Mm -hmm. Black woman calls the cops. Her mentally ill son, she's like, I don't know what to do. His name is Jason Harrison. 
Again, these cops were cleared. But same situation. Triggering, y'all, turn away. But I'm showing you how three different shootings, three different parts of the country, end up being the exact same thing. Watch this. I'll pull it back. Glad y'all here. I can't control him. Young man comes out. Y'all, I want y'all to see this. He got a screwdriver in his hand. For some reason, Jason Harrison was enamored with this screwdriver. I hate that we can't hear the audio because there's another, there's another, uh, I've, there's another video that actually has audio. You hear the cops say, put it down, put it down. They're backing away. What do you think happens? Right here. Look at this here. Y'all, he opened the door. They are standing not even 10 feet from him. That's his taser, to Kelly's point. You see his taser right there. His first choice, he pulled out his gun. Boom. Dead. Y'all, let me go back. Mama opens the door right here. I just want you to understand. They open the door. 36, 30 uh, right here. Mama opens the door. At the 57 second mark. She says, I don't know what to do with my son. Y'all need to help me. Shots fired, he's dead. Y'all, that was 13 seconds. Right. It was 13 seconds. Matt, 13 seconds from when the door opened and this man is shot and killed. This is what, and we, we see this over and over again, and cops get off because, hey, the law says man had a screwdriver, cops had reasonable, uh, reasonable uh, uh, belief that their life might be in danger, they're trained to use lethal force. It's inexcusable, Roland, but it does show you the gap in the law. The problem is, from a criminal standpoint, when these officers are prosecuted, they're able to avail themselves of the same law that a, an average citizen would be able to use in terms of self-defense, and they're doing it in the context of their job, which is why we see them beating these cases all the time. So what needs to happen is there need to be stronger, one, criminal penalties for officers who use their uh, weapons, you know, especially in a lethal context, uh, when it's unreasonable, number one. But number two, there needs to be an actual way for families to get recourse. It is it's so difficult to prosecute these cases from a civil standpoint because not only do they get cover on the criminal side, they get cover on the civil side. So this is also a matter of a gap in the law because officers need to be held to a higher standard. They shouldn't be treated the same way your average citizen is, but they are, which is why they customarily beat these cases. And this is why a lot of folks, they're afraid to call the cops when they have folks who have mentally ill uh, family members because they might end right. up dead. Um, sad. So we'll see what happens there in Tennessee. Got to go to a break. We come back. Uh, what's happening in Bridgeport? Oh, my goodness. Another family says a loved one ends up dead. Cops don't even notify the family. We're talking here at the Bridgeport NAACP. Next to Roland Martin Unfiltered right here on the Black Show Network.
Don't you think it's time to get wealthy? I'm Deborah Owens, America's Wealth Coach, and my new show on the Black Star Network focuses on the things your financial advisor or bank isn't telling you. So watch Get Wealthy on the Black Star Network. Pull up a chair, take your seat. The Black Tape with me, Dr. Greg Carr, here on the Black Star Network. Every week, we'll take a deeper dive into the world we're living in. Join the conversation only on the Black Star Network. Hello, everyone. I'm Godfrey, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. And while he's doing Unfiltered, I'm practicing the wobble. Fourteen-year-old Ariana uh, Wilkerson, folks, was last seen January 10th in Cleveland, Ohio. She is five feet five inches tall, weighs 125 pounds, with brown hair and brown eyes. If you have any information regarding Ariana's disappearance, please call the Cleveland Police Department at 216-621-1234. 216-621-1234. We've been covering the story of Lauren Smith Fields, the young black woman who died in her Bridgeport, Connecticut apartment. And her family says police have completely mishandled and bungled this case. Well, there's another black woman who died on the same day. Brenda Rawls died on December 12th. Police did not notify her family uh, after several days of no contact. Uh, they went to a friend of Rawls who told the family that she did not wake up from her sleep. The friend gave the family the clothes Brenda was wearing. Connecticut State Senator Dennis Bradley will be introducing a bill in honor of Lauren Smithfields requiring police in Connecticut to notify immediate family members within 24 hours of someone passing away. The Greater Bridgeport NAACP is challenging city officials to do better. Joining me now is Reverend D. Stanley Lord, the president of the Bridgeport, Connecticut chapter of the NAACP. Uh, Reverend Lord, glad to have you here. The, you know, we have had the family attorney for Lawrence Smith feels on. And they've talked about how this case has been bungled. They've talked about just how, how they've conducted it. Um, you know, what, are, what the hell is the police chief there saying? Well, you know, what are the, you know, we had the president pro tem of the city council on as well. I mean, are they embarrassed by how this investigation has been conducted? I actually, the, uh, Chief, I spoke to the deputy chief today. The uh, acting chief is actually on vacation in Florida, uh, a pre-scheduled uh, vacation. Uh, but the reality that most people don't know is that the man who she was with uh, is a city employee. The from the what the parents from the family says is that only one officer showed up, maybe they were two, but there was no investigation. And there's a question of whether or not the body was sent as a Jane Doe. And then the family had to go find, they had to call the undertaker and say, well, what do you do when you can't find your child and they're dead? They'll say, well, call Farmington, uh, which is the morgue, and where they do the medical examination, and that's where they found their loved one. Uh, we have... Uh, 
given numerous press uh, releases. We've tried to meet with the mayor on different occasions when issues of police wrongdoing, but he always gives us his cronies. He has never met with us, and I've been in office for two years. So, um, so, so, so what is next? The, the president pro tem told us the city council was going to pass or send a letter requesting the state uh, take over the investigation. Uh, that was supposed to happen yesterday. To your knowledge, has that happened? To my knowledge, I don't, I'm not sure. The, we will be sending a, a letter. We sent a press release demanding uh, yesterday, a, uh, demanding that the state take over the uh, investigation. The state narcotics and the state DEA, because Bridgeport Brass has proven that they are inadequate when it comes to doing a proper investigation. The um, and again, uh, you know, as we as we talk to folks and 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 you know, this story is, is finally picking up some attention uh, across the country and it is shedding light on uh, the police department on, on the city itself. And, and again, I would I would think that you would have a much more proactive um, uh, police department and uh, city leadership uh, because the last thing you want is this level of negative attention. Well, reality is this. This is a predominantly black and brown city of which we have less than 15% officers of color. We have only one officer uh, in leadership and the detectives bureau, only one black. We have no leadership of the top ranks of the Bridgeport Police Department. And that's the problem. That's why we have insensitivity issues. Okay, so if, so okay, I'm trying to understand. Well, if that's the, if you have that racial makeup, so let's see here. Um, African-Americans make up, according to what I have here, 32.3% of the city. Um, white, Hispanic, 20.3%. White is 20.1%. Uh, so you're talking about 53, 54, 55%. What's the racial? What's the racial racial makeup of the city council? City council is about 60 40. 60 40 what? Black, brown, or white? White, white. Okay, so so what's going on? Are black folks there not voting folks out? Reality is this: uh, our city council doesn't run the city. The mayor does. The city council, the uh, the mayor, the city council answers to the mayor, not the mayor answering to the city council. So we have it backwards here at the Bridgeport. Wow. Uh, well, that's certainly not uh, good leadership there. Um, what, what's next for the NAACP there? We'll be making a major announcement on uh, Monday, whereby we have to take a next step and ask uh, the U.S. Justice Department to come in and investigate the uh, pattern and practices of the Greater Bridgeport in a uh, Greater Greater or Excuse me, I'm used to saying our, our, our own name, the Bridgeport Police Department. Okay. All right, then. Uh, well, uh, certainly keep us abreast of that, Reverend Lord. We certainly will uh, be, um, you know, covering this story uh, to its conclusion. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot. And thank you for all that you do in keeping out our news before the people. I appreciate, appreciate you. It. Thank you very much, sir. Thank Thanks you. a lot. Mark, I want to start with you. This is the thing that I continue to say. Um while we talk about voting. We saw this with Ferguson. 
Ferguson was 67% black. Right. Had never had a black police chief. Mm-hmm. Had never had a black mayor. Had limited black folks in the city council. This right. is where black folks have got to be using our voting power. You control the city council, you control the mayor. Mayor is one vote. You can control, you control the process. But if you don't use your political power, then you can't control the political process. Absolutely. Now, in, in the case of uh, Ferguson, Missouri, and once again, this is an example of how politics is the legal distribution of scarce wealth pond resources and the writing of laws, statutes, ordinances, amendments, and treaties, their adoption, interpretation, and enforcement. In the case of Ferguson, Missouri, the way that city government worked is that the city manager was the one who had the power. Right. The mayor but, worked. The mayor worked part time. I'm not disagreeing right, with right, you. Right. 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 But 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 even, but even in a city manager form of government, right. The council hires the city manager. Right. So so exactly. So I just want people to understand. It's 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 some cities. It's like some big cities don't have a city manager. It's the mayor and city council. In Ferguson, Missouri, the city, the way, the way it was structured, and it's probably based upon the charter, which is something that's, that is like the constitution of the city, which is really important for people to understand the charters of those cities, because those charters can be rewritten as well. It sound, and it sounds like uh, in Bridgeport, uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut, it sounds like that charter needs to be rewritten so that there's a balance in power between the mayor and the city council. Well, okay. I, mean, I, I mean, look, I mean, there, there are a lot mm-hmm. of cities across the country where you have that. Look, I, I covered Fort Worth City Council where they had a mm-hmm. city manager form of government. City Council, how the city manager, city manager ran the city. City of Dallas has a city manager form of government. There are a number of cities mm-hmm. that do that. Again, the difference, though, is the city council tells right. the city manager what to do. You've got to have a robust city council that right. is putting that pressure. So, again, what I'm talking about here, uh, Kelly, voting power. If you don't mm-hmm. maximize it, then you're not in a position to be able to change things. Mayor needs citywide votes. You tell a mayor, keep playing games, we voting your ass out. But you got to do it. You got to actually make it happen. I mean, and that's with anything, right? You have to make it happen. But with going going back to the core issue of the fact that these black women have been dying pretty much at the hands of the law enforcement is just a, certainly a no 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 that's, no that's incorrect that's incorrect that's incorrect they're not dying at the hands of law enforcement and I know I understand that the law enforcement aren't actually killing them but the fact that they're not doing their due diligence that's what I mean at the hands of it was more hyperbole than okay well no no but that's that when you say dying at the hands of sounds like law enforcement is killing them I I, I was I I get it but um to your point um we need to take these matters more seriously um and I think God for shows like yours that actually take this matter seriously because we really do need to protect black women. But you're absolutely right that a start to protecting black women is to get people into offices that have that kind of mantra behind their policies and their platforms such that when they do vote for anything, they keep black women in mind, especially when it comes to law enforcement and safety. See the thing. The thing that Matt that just that just drives me crazy again. I I I remember what happened with Ferguson. I was sitting there going, "How in the hell are you a city that's sixty-seven percent black and you never had a black mayor?" 
I mean, it was just, it was, it was just, it was just, it was crazy to me. And 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 again, I think, I think, you know, look, I, I know that there, I was, um, it was, um, we were, um, we were dealing with, a few years ago when I was at TV One, we were dealing with some cities in Mississippi. Black mayor, black council. What they did was they had hired these, a white city attorney. And so we were dealing with them because it, it, the way the cable business works, the city determines who gets the cable contract. We were trying to explain to them, mm -hmm. use your power to city council to say to the local cable contract, why in the hell TV One's not on here? We want a black network. And so you had these white city, city attorneys who would say, oh, no, no, y'all can't do that. We were saying to the black people, this y'all city. <laughs> like, y'all got all of the positions. What are y'all doing? And, and this is the thing where it's you have to use your power. I, as, they, as they are demanding answers there in Bridgeport, I believe you've got to have folks who are mobilizing to also say, keep playing games. We're going to take every single one of y'all out of office. Y'all keep playing games. I think you're exactly right, Roland. I don't know that I have too much to add because I echo those exact, exact same sentiments. But I think what's important is in this case, you've got a mayor-council form of government, as you and Michael were just discussing, and that imperils the mayor, especially where he or she decides not to meet with the people. So that's what I don't understand is how do you have a mayor who decides not even to sit at the table with you when they are the one who's on the chopping block if things don't go the right way? I mean, you need a strong city council. But where you have the mayor who is the ultimate executive, then they are the ones who are imperiled if they don't do what they need to do. So we absolutely need to use the power. And beyond using the power, we need to determine who is most at risk for being removed in the event they're not doing their job. And what I don't get here is how this department can bungle two high-profile situations involving black women where they had evidence on scene of nefarious activity, didn't take anybody into custody, botched the investigation, and didn't even notify the families. I mean, the incompetence is beyond description, and I don't understand how anybody still has their job after that kind of situation. I just want people to understand, even in the city manager form of government, council hires the city manager. Change the council, you can fire the city manager. Right. Who controls the police department? The city manager. So you make clear to the manager, we want to see changes in the police department hierarchy or city, or city police, city police uh, uh, chief, you're out. City manager, you're next. Y'all, I've seen it happen. Again, I covered city council in Fort Worth. It was a city manager form of government, and that's exactly what they did. They said, get your departments together or we're going to sit here and bounce the city manager. Trust me. They don't want to lose their job. So uh, we'll see again what happens uh, there next in Bridgeport. All right, folks, got to go to a break. We come back. Uh, black farmers say PepsiCo is not doing right by them. PepsiCo says, yes, we are. We'll talk with John Boyd, who leads the National Black Farmers Association, next right here on Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network.
this is Dr. Jackie Hood-Martin, and I'd like to ask you a question. Is your life teetering under the weight and stress and pressures of everyday life? Well, let me tell you, balance isn't easy. Join me each Tuesday on Black Star Network for Living a Balanced Life with Dr. Jackie. We'll laugh together, cry together, cheer ourselves on, and pull ourselves together, together. Learn tips and tools that will help you with the everyday stressors. So join me each Tuesday on Black Star Network for A Balanced Life with Dr. Jackie. We're all impacted by the culture, whether we know it or not. From politics to music and entertainment, it's a huge part of our lives. And we're going to talk about it every day right here on The Culture with me, Faraji Muhammad, only on the Black Star Network. Hello, everyone. It's Kiara Sheard. Hey, I'm Taj. I'm Coco. And I'm Lily. And we're SWV. What's up, y'all? It's Ryan Destiny, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. All right, folks. Uh, welcome back to Roland Martin Unfiltered. Uh, let's talk about uh, National Black Farmers. We've talked about the plight uh, that they have been, the fight they've been involved in. Uh, with the federal government when it comes to getting uh, COVID relief money. Uh, now, uh, the National Black Farmers Association president is calling out PepsiCo over what he calls empty promises. John Boyd says the company has been all talk and has not issued any contracts uh, to black farmers after vowing to increase the number of contracts awarded last year. Uh, he joins us now from Virginia. John, John, glad to have you on the show. So exactly what, what's, what's the issue uh, that you have with PepsiCo? What's going on? Well, the, the issue, uh, Roland, thank you for having me. The issue's been going on for a very, very long time. Well, we've been challenging uh, PepsiCo to do business uh, with black farmers, where we helped uh, raise the issue about uh, answering mom and pancake to face this on the box. They, they, changed the, they changed the picture on the box, but they didn't change the way that they do business. Uh, they aren't doing any contracts uh, in the form of uh, potatoes or, or corn, Two things that every black farmer in this country can grow. I don't know a black farmer that can't grow a potato and a ear of corn. And uh, they refuse to do any contracts after leading us on for a year and a half. We met all of the uh, criteria uh, to grow the potatoes and, and corn, uh, our soil and uh, contents and things of this nature. All of these things uh, uh, we can do. And we proved that to the, com to the uh, company, PepsiCo. And after we'd done that, uh, we crossed all the hurdles. At the 99th hour, when we were ready to uh, move forward with contracts, the company says, oh, well, now we're going in a different direction, and we don't think that we're going to be contracting with uh, uh, black farmers. There's only two directions to go in here. Black, which they don't have any uh, black growers, or you continue to uh, do more business with white farmers. All of their farmers' uh, contracts are rolling are white men, white male farmers. And uh, it's time to change that. You know, they, they say these things and they put out these great diversity statements on how they're going to include blacks that never trickle down to the actual people who's supposed to be doing and, and benefiting from these contracts. So we reach out to PepsiCo uh, with regards to uh, the press release that you issued earlier. This is what uh, they just sent us. It is incorrect to equate our decision not to pursue a further relationship with John Boyd with a lack of interest in working with the farmers of the National Black Farmers Association or black growers in general. Unfortunately, despite our repeated requests made of John Boyd, 
We were unable to meet with NBFA members and were not given the opportunity to assess their operational capabilities. As part of our racial equality journey, PepsiCo remains committed to increasing black representation in the agricultural supply chain and working with black growers on efficiency, productivity, and sustainability. We are proud that over the past two years, we have increased our spend with black suppliers by more than $150 million, including a significant increase in our spend with black-owned farms. We're also proud to serve on the corporate advisory board of the National Black Growers Council, working to further increase our spend with black growers and remove systemic barriers for their operations. Now, um, th let's address the first item here. When they say we were unable to meet with NBFA members and were not given the opportunity to assess their operational capabilities, how do you respond to that? That's definitely not true, Roland. And they uh, wanted us to give us uh, uh, intricate details about uh, our membership list, where we invited uh, PepsiCo to come out to our conference and to be uh, a speaker at our conference, and neither one happened. Uh, they're the ones who haven't uh, been responsive. They have, as a matter of fact, they haven't been responsive uh, for years. And, you know, that's what these uh, Fortune 500 companies do when leaders like myself call them out, when we called out John Deere, uh, they'll run and find uh, a black, a softer black face uh, that will say nice things about the company. But in all reality, John Deere doesn't treat us any better than it did before. And uh, PepsiCo comes out with a similar statement that John Deere just did. And all reality, Roland, we still don't have any contracts after we met all of the criteria uh, from soil samples. Uh, their specialists came out and said, hey, uh, we should be doing business with you guys. And then they, they retract and say, you know, we want to go in a different direction. Uh, uh, that's what these companies do. And they need to be held accountable in the black community. And other, uh, other black leaders should be accountable uh, for their actions when they let these companies off the hook and they don't provide any real uh, subsident uh, uh, contracts and things that benefit, uh, in this case, uh, the black farmers community across the board. So, okay, uh, and so in terms of uh, this, this uh, in terms of assessing operational capabilities, when you say they wanted the list, and so did, did y'all ever sit down and meet? Did you, did you, did you, did NBFA ever lay out, these are our, this, this is what our members are, this is our capability, uh, and so, and so, so were these in-person meetings, were they Zoom meetings due to COVID, and how often did y'all meet? Yes, and, and great questions. These are all Zoom calls, and uh, the person uh, that was at the table was uh, uh, Keith, uh, Keith something at, at PepsiCo, who was supposed to be the buyer for potatoes and, and corn. And uh, for the people that are watching, this isn't, isn't something new. These talks have been going on for a year and a half, and now all of a sudden they say they own somebody else's board, and they're going to uh, uh, try to do something with other people. Roland, that's what these companies do. To, to blacks and, and black leaders in this in this country, it's called divide. It's called divide and conquer. And and this is one time I'm not going to sit back and not not say anything. Uh, it's not right when people sell you out and uh, not get uh, substance uh, uh, contracts and things uh, for black farmers in this case. Either uh, in John Deere and, and in this case uh, PepsiCo. I'm not letting these companies off the hook. We met all the criteria, and like I said earlier, I don't know a black farmer in this country that can't grow a potato if he was provided a contract and can't grow an ear of corn if we were 
provided a contract. The issue here is PepsiCo hasn't granted us any contracts. They can do the same thing that they're doing with white farmers. I don't need a different uh, contract than what they got. Give us the same uh, opportunity to provide those goods and deliver on, on time and see and give us the opportunity to fail here. And we was never able and we were never able given that opportunity. And that's what these companies do uh, to, to uh, blacks in this country. Divide and conquer and wait us out. They waited till the Aunt Mama thing calmed down and then all of a sudden we want to go in, a, in another direction or we're going to try to do something to work with some other people. And I'm here today to say on your show, Roland, because you've been a leader on these issues and you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's time to draw the line in the sand with, with corporate America and it's time for them to deliver on blacks and, and stop pimping us out here because that's what they're doing. What is, just, for people, I mean, I got people in our chat rooms that are asking this question as well. And I got a question, I'm sure um, each of our panelists has a question. What is the National Black Growers Council? What is that? Some group they probably came up with. They was helped to uh, formulate with uh, John Deere's when uh, they really came out and said that they were going to uh, support and uh, work with a uh, core group at John Deere. And the person who's head of that is uh, a African-American male, uh, Mark uh, something, Mark House, uh, an executive with John Deere, who uh, helped put the group together. And that's what they do, Roland, to try to go around uh, when we put pressure uh, where John Deere wasn't servicing uh, black farmers, uh, servicing white farmers and getting to black farmers at Miller by Harvest when they got good and ready. And I called them out on it, and they went and uh, found some some black some black faces to say, "Hey, John Deere is good." In all reality, John Deere isn't uh, still isn't uh, servicing black farmers, and the way that we're greeted at these local racist dealers isn't any better than it was when I bought the issue out uh, on your show, Roland, a, a few years ago. And PepsiCo is uh, probably doing the same thing. That's what these corporate people do. Uh, they they use fancy lines uh, such as. We're going to move in another direction. That's a favorite uh, line of corporate America, which simply say we're not going to do any business with you. And Black America needs to hold them accountable. How much? How many cans of Pepsi does a uh, uh, Black star drink in this country? But we can't get a damn contract with them. And they're sitting there trying to tell me that something's right with that, and it's not. We can meet the demand. We can meet the capabilities. We can deliver, and we can grow a damn tater like we say in the country. And I can grow ear corn. And uh, PepsiCo is full of it on that, on that statement. Uh, any questions from our panel? Matt? Yes. Michael? I have a question. But, okay, Matt, I'm start with you. Go. Uh, good evening, Brother Boyd. I have a quick question for you. Um, did your members do things like, like uh, consultants or experts to determine, you know, what they would be able to do in terms of output? Like, what costs did your members incur based on the verbal agreement that Pepsi had that they were going to give you all contracts? Well, first of all, we used uh, their people. It was their experts who came out and uh, looked at the, tested the soil and said that, uh, you know, we meted the criteria. Uh, so it was their experts who said we, we met all the demands. And after we met the, uh, the demands, uh, I really pushed them to execute the contract. And they said, well, we're not going to do it this year. We're going to do it uh, probably the first of uh, this year, which would have been January, and we was going to start on a smaller scale and build from there. And when we got on the Zoom call, that's when I was looking for the details on how to move forward with the contract. And all of these executives are on the Zoom call with me saying that PepsiCo would not be uh, moving forward with uh, black farmers, that they were going in a new direction.
And that's when I asked him, what direction is it? When all of your contracts, I want to be real clear on this show, all of their contracts for all of the years with PepsiCo have been with white male farmers, uh, not a black farmer in this country has supplied a, a, a potato or an ear of corn to uh, PepsiCo. And I think it's unacceptable that, that we let them, uh, you know, slide on this type of thing. And, and we buy their products, Frito-Lays, potato chips, and uh, Pepsi and Pepsi can and, and, and Pepsi two liter drinks. Uh, I think we Pepsi going to do a lot better. Kelly, um, sure. So, granted, PepsiCo is like you just alluded to a an enormous um, conglomerate of goods. You know, from chips to foods, everything. But that being said. If they're not supporting black business, obviously it's going to be hard to boycott Pepsi. You can't. I'm not going to, you know, discredit that. But in in the interim, who can we support that will support you? Are there any other PepsiCo equivalents that are either black owned or uh, black encouraging? Not encouraging, but you know, endorsing you know, in terms of buying black, supporting black business, et cetera. Like, are there companies out there that you already work with that we can support that in turn will support you? Del Monte has been good to the National Black Farmers Association. And we're beginning to do some uh, con some formal contracts with uh, Del Monte. Uh, but uh, Roland, I did leave out as well that uh, uh, I'm looking to meet with the uh, president of, uh, of PepsiCo. I would like to sit down with with him to get a more clearer uh, direction of uh, where they where they said there's new direction that they're going in. Uh, you know what is it? Uh, what does it what what does it include? And and, and you know why are we left out? I think is uh, you know what I would like to meet with the, the president about. And if uh, there are any uh, blacks that you know that have significant shares of uh, PepsiCo, reach out to them and let them know that none of their none of their business or contracts or potatoes or or ear corn is, has went out to a black farmer in this country. And if their shareholders there weigh in at, at the shareholders meeting as to why we can't uh, be a part of this uh, company. Uh, that's, uh, that's the old reality. Corporate, corporate 500 in this country has to start doing business with blacks in the form of, uh, of our contracts for other uh, small black businesses, uh, whether it's black farmers. These companies are getting away with not doing business with us but we continue to be uh, consumers and, and, and buy their products hand over fist every day. But we don't demand that they put some resources and commitment back into the black community. Well, and this is one, of the, and that's one of the things that, that we've been making when it comes to advertising, things along those lines. And and you know, I I, I do I would love for Pe look here's the deal. We extended the invitation. I would love for PepsiCo to come on the show uh, to share this when they say in their statement that they increased their spend with black suppliers by more than 150 million including a significant increase in our speed with black-owned farms, I want to know what's that actual number when you say significant increase. And so I want to know what was the number before, what's the number now. It's the same thing that we asked of General Motors, uh, we asked of McDonald's, uh, we asked of uh, Target, uh, Walmart, uh, all the companies that we were talking about. So when people were saying, hey, we're spending significant, we said, no, 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 what's significant? What's the actual number? And then what's the percentage? So we, we can then sit in here and do the apples to apples comparison. I would love to do the exact same thing uh, with PepsiCo. Michael, go right ahead. 
Uh, Brother Boyd, thanks for coming on and uh, giving us this valuable information. Um, in 2020, uh, Pepsi's net revenue was $70 billion in North America, $70 billion. Do you know what percentage of that $70 billion came from African-American consumers, one? And two, are you looking at, um, uh, back in about 1981, Reverend Jesse Jackson uh, oh, yeah. led a uh, successful economic boycott against Coca-Cola, a nationwide boycott. Are you looking at uh, doing something like that as well? Well, I tell you, that may be the next steps of uh, looking at a, a national boycott against PepsiCo. Uh, because what we allow these companies to do is uh, make these statements and put out these uh, huge numbers. And uh, we, we can't point to the people that are, who they say, are, are, are actually getting the business in, in the black community. Uh, as far as the uh, total number of how much input or what we buy from uh, PepsiCola, I'm not sure what that number is. Uh, but I certainly have drunk uh, Pepsi before and had a Frito-Lay potato chip. I'm not going to lie to you. But they aren't putting the resources back, uh, not only right. for black, but for black businesses uh, in this mm -hmm. country. And, and they can do better. And if we band together, I believe this is one time uh, we can hold uh, PepsiCo's feet to the fire. And I'm asking uh, other black uh, leaders, uh, don't be don't be sellouts. Uh, make sure that there's something in it for everyone before we let a company off the hook. Uh, just because they put out a fancy statement doesn't mean uh, I'm going away or others. I'm not going away. Uh, Roller can tell you how long we've been at this game. Uh, a right. very, very long time. And uh, thank you, Roller, for, for continuing to put black news in, in our living rooms and in our communities and in our families so that they know what's going on out here. This this type of thing is very, very important. And uh, also, uh, I, I left that one piece. We can meet the demand as black farmers if we provided a contract. And I think that we can deliver uh, uh, just like any other farmer. Uh, so I want to put that piece to rest that uh, these companies keep, keep uh, alluding to the fact that we can't produce I've been farming for uh, 39 years, and I've never missed a crop season, uh, whether it was a dry season or a bad season. Uh, uh, I just finished harvesting uh, 400 acres of soybeans. Uh, I had 300 acres of corn. Uh, people, are, I'm, I'm competing in the top three commodities in this country, corn, wheat, and soybeans, and I can fulfill a potato contract, and I certainly can fill a, a, a corn contract for PepsiCo if we were provided that same opportunity as they're providing white farmers in this country. All right, then, uh, John Boyd, National Black Farmers Association. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Fab. And, and just for our folks know, uh, again, this right here, uh, the National Black uh, Growers Council, this is their board of directors right here. Uh, we'll be reaching out to them. Would love to have them on the show. This is their corporate advisory board. You see um, Frito-Lay, uh, Farmer Credit Bank of Texas. Uh, you see... Uh, Bun Bungie North America, John Deere, Bayer, FMC, uh, Great American Insurance as the corporate board members. Uh, and so, uh, and again, love to have PepsiCo on here. I, I, our goal just, and, and I need people to understand as we walk through uh, this, when we talk about where's our money, we have these segments mm -hmm. on the show. What we are doing is we are attempting to what I call reprogram black America. John Hope Bryant talks about uh, a reboot. So what happens is, in the history of America, we have been excellent consumers. 
We've been fantastic consumers. We have been amazing consumers of numerous products, soft drinks, fast food, cars, clothing. I mean, we could go on and on and on. Yet when we begin to talk about the money, then things begin to shift. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, what people have to understand is part of the problem here is that when we have this discussion, a lot of times the battle is with folk who look like us. Oh, I, I got people who hop on my Twitter page, my Instagram page, man, uh, uh, why you out here big and white folks? And I said, so you mean to tell me $322 billion is spent every year on advertising in America and black-owned media should not be getting our fair share? Is, is that what you're saying? Really? Henry, get a shot of my, 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 my wall there. And if not, matter of fact, I, I, got, I got the graphic on my phone. Let me try to find it. The, the, the thing that I'm trying to get people to understand is when I say we have to reprogram, because too many of us are tripping because you got somebody black who's saying, yeah, I think, I think you know, we deserve what's ours economically. That's what Operation Breadbasket was about. That's what Reverend Leon Sullivan was doing. That's what the black collectives that we're doing in the 30s, 40s, and the 50s, that's what, that's what all this is. And so, I'm not saying Pepsi goes right, Pepsi goes wrong. What I'm saying is, John Boyd has made a claim, PepsiCo responded, <clears throat> I would love to know how much is being spent. How much are black farmers getting? Black farmers getting. Mm-hmm. Who's getting it? Because see, if you tell me, if you tell me that, oh, we've increased our spend, okay, what were you spending before? $1,000, $100,000? And then what's the increase now? 500,000, a million, two million? Or was it two million before, 30 million now? What's the number? We are not going to, and, and again, this is, the, this is the thing that I have been sitting here saying to people. There are people out here, and I see y'all, I see y'all comments. Y'all saying, reparations now. <laughs> okay. Who's gonna vote for it? And when's the vote gonna take place? And then, if they vote for it in the House, how's it pass the Senate? And then if it gets past the Senate, it goes to the president for signing. Then it's going to be a lawsuit. John Boyd was just on. There are provisions in the bill passed by Biden and Congress to give billions to black farmers. What happened? White farmers sued. Money's being held up. So what I'm arguing, while the people who support reparations are fighting reparations, we should be demanding our fair share when it comes to 
corporate America. I, 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 I told y'all, matter of fact, I'm gonna pull it up, just, just, just what y'all understand. Because I think a lot of people just, y'all think I'm just sort of just throwing this stuff out here as if, as if I'm crazy. Um, Two thousand eighteen. Councilwoman, excuse me, Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton asked the General Accounting Office to do a report on the spending, on the spending on federal government contracts for advertising. All of this is all of this is related, y'all. So whether you're talking about advertising with black owned media, contracts for black farmers. Matt's a lawyer, contracts with black attorneys. Y'all remember the general counsel of Coca-Cola said to the major law firms, hey, you know what? Y'all ain't getting this thing right. We're going to start snatching contracts. Ooh, law firms got really upset. But he said, that's the only way we're going to fix this thing. So all of this is the same. So pick the industry. Black folks ain't getting their fair share. I mean, I don't care what it is. I don't care what it is. We ain't getting it. In this report, you'll see that it says it right here. The 41-page report revealed that over the past five years, five fiscal years, federal government agencies spent $5 billion in advertising. $327 million went to minority-owned businesses. Black-owned businesses netted just $51 million, about $10 million per year over the five years covered. That means that black-owned businesses received 1% of the total federal advertising contracts. 1%. Do you know what's the difference between us getting 10% and 1%? Easy. If I, if I show you the CNN DC offices, multiple floors across from Union Station. If I took you to NBC News Channel, or we used to do my TV One show, multiple floors, and I see I show you black-owned media, mm -hmm. maybe one office on one floor. That's what happens when you get one percent. That was 1% over five years, y'all. So what we are trying to do with this show is to get you to understand our political power and where we're lacking, our economic power, where we're lacking, dealing with health, dealing with all these issues, because we have to change the dynamics for the future. We have to be thinking, Matt, Kelly, Michael, with a legacy mentality. We have to be thinking that, okay, I've got to ensure that I'm changing the game for the next generation so they're not having to fight over 1% 25 years from now. That is 5 or 8% or 10% by then. But we've got to have those who are watching. And I see somebody sat here and said, Michael, rebuild Black Wall Street. You cannot rebuild Black Wall Street 
with a tweet. <laughs> you cannot rebuild Black Wall Street if you do not reprogram Black people to buy Black-owned products. Right. And for a lot of folks, this is a theoretical discussion versus a real-life discussion. Michael. Uh, you, you, this is an extremely important discussion, Roland. Uh, number one, one of my teachers, Dr. Claude Anderson, has been teaching for years, we have to renegotiate our relationship with corporate America. And this is exactly what uh, John Boyd and you were talking about. Because we spend billions of dollars a year with these white corporations. They take our money and give contracts to white, to white small businesses, white-owned businesses, white farmers, things like this. And then uh, our, our businesses, our advertising agencies, our media can't grow like they should because we're being locked out, uh, locked out of these contracts. So this is uh, extremely important, and we need to take this. We need to um, hold all these corporations that we spend dollars with each year accountable for this because power could seize nothing without a demand. It never has and it never will. And when you talk about um, uh, Black Wall Street, it's important for people. I I've done lectures dealing with the history of Black Wall Street. I've studied it extensively. One, there were poor black people in Black Wall Street. So don't, don't act like there wasn't poor black people there. Yes, we can rebuild it, but you have to have some certain things. But the foundation of Black Wall Street, a lot of those, a lot of those um, early landowners in North Tulsa, okay, the, the black business district was called Black Wall Street or the Greenwood District. A lot of those early landowners got land from the federal government through the Black Freedmen Indian Treaties of 1866 also. And lastly, when we talk about reparations, what people miss is, is what you laid out. One, it has to pass the House of Representatives and the Senate. You can't name me 10 Republicans in the Senate that are going to vote for reparations. You can't name one. Tim Scott, you can't Tim name Scott one. already said he ain't going to vote for it. You can't name Tim one. Scott, and he's black. He ain't going to vote for it. The only people that support reparations are, are Democrats. Go to congress.gov, look up H.R. 40, 2021, uh, uh, 117th Congress. All the co-sponsors, last time I checked, there's 190 co-sponsors. They're all Democrats. And then you have to be able to keep it once you get it, if, you, if somehow you do get it, it's going to be challenged in the courts, as you just laid out. This is why federal ju federal judges are important. Federal judges are nominated by the president. This is why U.S. Supreme Court justices are important. F Supreme Court justices are nominated by the president as well, confirmed by the Senate, as well as federal judges. So we have to we have to understand how all these pieces come together and get past this theory and actually understand the process of bringing into fruition what it is that we say that we want. I mean, I, I tell you, Kelly. I mean, it, it, it is quite interesting when. And I said this, and people thought I was... I said this last night, and I want to bring this up again because I think it's a perfect example of what we're talking about, uh, and that is when we begin to... Um, we talk about demanding fair share. We talk about, you know, what's ours, what we should be getting, and all sort of stuff like that. Um, it, it's, it's amazing to me when I have folk, man, they fought, they, 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 they argue, they fight. And I, I tell people about priorities. I posted this three days ago, uh, Kelly. Um, go to my computer. And I said, I really wish 50 Cent and all the actors on these stars shows would ask execs in Lionsgate 
while they spend virtually no money on advertising with black-owned media. They're building their network on black eyeballs. They want their talent on our shows but spend no ad dollars. I'm 100% with black folks in front of the camera and behind the camera, but the ecosystem media extends beyond that. I get inundated with press releases from these media companies, get pitched to have their talent on Roland Martin Unfiltered and before this Tom Jordan and TV One and all the black newspapers I have run, yet when we inquire about advertising, crickets. So our shows are good enough to have talent come on, but not to advertise. I wish more black actors, producers, and directors would ask these networks these type of questions and demand they support black-owned media, hashtag black-owned media matters. Now, why did I say that? It's because we demand our black actors to get better parts and better roles. We demand better diversity and inclusion on the screen. What I'm arguing to those black actors, y'all got to be doing the exact same thing when it comes to resources. But... I'm going to show you again priorities. On that particular item, it got 362 hearts, 43 comments. I posted about Fox likely ending our kind of people, a show that's on Fox, black talent, network we don't own. Mm-hmm. Go to my computer. You will see right here, folks, 8,255 <clears throat> hearts, 2,521 comments. So, Kelly, on one post, I'm talking about black economics, 43 comments. I'm here, I'm talking about a black, target, a black targeted show on a network that we don't own, 2,521 comments. We also got to look <laughs> at our priorities. Go ahead. I understand what you're saying, and everything you've said thus far is valid. However, with when you compare posts like that, uh, tying it back to what uh, Michael just said, you're not going to need, like, there were poor people in uh, Black Wall Street as well. Similarly, you're not going to need all 8,000 of those hearts to get what you need accomplished when it comes to getting Black media dollars. Yes, you do. Um, if anything, you might just need however many hearts you had on the original post nope, regarding nope, you need 8, Black media advertising matter. Nope, you need 8,000. I'm sorry? You need 8,000. You know why? You know why? You know what Stars is going to do? Stars is going to go, I just see 43 comments. Mm -hmm. Oh, trust me. I have been in these negotiations. They when they see 2,500 comments, they go, oh, shit. <laughs> when they see 40, they go, y'all, we good. Trust me. I guarantee you. I'm just going to give you an example. I'm not going to name the company. We went after one company last year. The company called a black ad agency and said, can you get us the impressions on Roland's post? The black company called me. They said, Roland, can you send me the impressions? So we pulled together that video that was on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, all the platforms. Sit the impressions on a Friday night. 
No, no, I got the call on a Friday night. I sent the impressions on a Saturday morning. They were meeting with me on Monday. But if my impressions were low, Kelly, wouldn't have been a meeting. Hmm. Oh, I can get, oh, they, they have, I know for a fact, they click on our Instagram page to see, oh, we good. It's about 20, 30 comments. Oh, shit. A thousand people commented. Um, we need to do that meeting. Trust, trust me. They pay attention. And that that's also very valid, which is all the more reason I kind of want to go back to talking about black farmers, which was the beginning of this segment, because if what you say is true, and I believe it is, you have no reason to lie about it. We need as many impressions regarding black farmers getting what they need out of these big companies so that they can do the work that they feel like they were put on this earth to do, which is farming. So shout out to Del Monte, who um, has a plethora of product as well. Um, not as much as PepsiCo, but substantial enough for us to know that name and it have uh, weight in, you know, in regards to our lexicon regarding uh, groceries and product. Um, kudos to them for actually supporting black farmers and, you know, shout out to those in the future, those companies in the future who want to support black farmers as well. But PepsiCo definitely needs to get on the ball and hopefully other companies like Del Monte will follow. The, the, the thing that I'm trying to, trying to, impress upon the people who are watching and I'm looking at their comments, Matt, is to understand when we click like, when we post a comment, keep it going, it impacts the deal making. And what I am saying to our people, when we are quick to comment on a show that features black people, but that we don't own, Mm -hmm. on a network that we don't own, a network that does not actually employ a lot of us, but then when, then, but then folk like, man, we need, we need black media talking about our story. Y'all, we can't cover the stories if we can't pay staff to cover them. Precisely. Precisely. I mean, people have to patronize uh, our own. And beyond that, what we all know is going to happen in four days is all of these Fortune 500 companies are going to trot out their Black History Month stuff to tell oh, my how Lord. Much money Woo! they put in our communities, right? Right. That's the, insidi that's the insidious part about this, is that we all know McDonald's is going to start putting hip-hop back in its commercials, right, so that they can, they can advertise to us. And then the other eleven months of the year, they can do what they can. They they can do what they choose, which is not giving us, you know, our fair share. And beyond that, what I found particularly interesting about Brother Boyd's segment is he used the word "pimped," which I thought was really important, because what this company did is sat at the table with them for months on end, told them everything they needed to do to meet the capacities and to to get the contracts. They did that. They proved it. And then the company went back on it and said, "Oh, you know what? We're not going to do business with y'all after all." I guarantee you they're not doing that to the National Farmers Organization. And every one of these companies that's going to try to sell us a bill of goods in February saying we care about black people, we know it's BS. And again... We know it's BS because you're not giving us our fair share. And again, PepsiCo denies that, and here's the deal. I got no problem having PepsiCo on. Got no problem doing whatsoever. I, and I still want to know what's the spin. And, he, and let me be clear. If a company is doing right, we're going to put the information out. Ain't going to be a problem. I got no problem doing it. 
If PepsiCo comes and says, yo, hit the numbers, John wrong. Got it. That's fine. This which is why we have no problem putting information out. But what I'm trying to argue to our people, and yes, I got the company sitting there going, Roland, what's your Black History Month plan? I'm like, y'all know I do black every day. <laughs> right. <laughs> so don't, see, I'm telling y'all, I'm telling, I'm tell man, y'all, y'all would be blown away if y'all heard some of the conversations that we've had to have with people who are like, Roland, do you have a Black History Month calendar? I'm like, yeah, March, April, May, June, exactly. July, August, September, October, November, December, January. Exactly. They're like, I'm sorry, what do you mean? I'm like, I don't only talk to black people and about black people in one month, 28 days. Mm -hmm. So how about y'all support us 12 months? And then people get real quiet and then don't return emails. All right, y'all. Uh, we're going to keep fighting the fight. Uh, and again, appreciate John coming on. Appreciate PepsiCo with the statement. Again, I want to see numbers. And that's important to give facts to the audience. All right, y'all, we come back. Ooh, we'll be joined by Texas State Senator Jasmine Crockett. Uh, we'll be joined by Texas Rep. Jasmine Crockett. Y'all, y'all can believe this story of a, a white Republican came forward and like, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's voter suppression. Yeah, we violating the Voting Rights Act. Signed. I'll explain next to Roller Martin Filter. America's Pull up a chair, take your seat. The Black Tape with me, Dr. Greg Carr, here on the Black Star Network every week. We'll take a deeper dive into the world we're living in. Join the conversation only on the Black Star Network. Hey, I'm Cupid, the maker of the Cupid Shuffle and the Wham Dance. What's going on? This is Tobias Trevelyan. And if you're ready, you are listening to and you are watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. Y'all ain't gonna believe this. In a sworn statement, a retiring Republican Texas state senator said he believes the GOP violated federal voting laws when they redistricted state Senate District 10 in the Fort Worth area. In November, Texas Senator Kale uh, Seliger said, having participated in the 2011 and 2013 Senate Select Redistricting Committee proceedings and having read the prior federal court decision regarding SD10, it was obvious to me 
that the renewed effort to dismantle SD10 violated the Voting Rights Act and the U.S. Constitution. Y'all, he literally signed this in an affidavit. Now, Texas maps were redrawn and approved by Governor Greg Abbott in October. Some of, the, uh, some of them diluted the voting power of minority voters and increased districts with majority whites. Joining us now uh, is State Representative Jasmine Crockett of Texas. Uh, this has to be quite surprising to you to have one of your Texas legislature colleagues, a white Republican, come out and say, yeah, my party in this district deliberately wanted to violate the Voting Rights Act. Um, first of all, Roland, it's good to see you. You know, people don't understand what all goes on behind the scenes. Um, our lieutenant governor's race is a race that nobody is really talking about, but people don't understand how much power our lieutenant governor has. And so, to me, this is a result of the war that the lieutenant governor decided to wage, not only on Democrats, but on some of the Republicans as well. If they didn't line up fast enough or quick enough, he decided, decided that he was going after them. And so you saw a number of Republicans that retired that didn't want to retire. They retired because he messed their districts up. And so I think this is a little bit of that backlash for him going after some of his own. And for folks who don't know, in Texas, uh, the lieutenant governor controls the Texas State Senate. They literally have more power than the governor in Texas. Uh, that's how that goes. Uh, Jasmine, uh, Representative Crockett, it's been a constant battle in Texas uh, when it comes to voting rights. Uh, they're being sued. The Department of Justice is also going after them as well. Um, but these are the type of shameful things Republicans are doing to hold onto power. Oh, absolutely. It's a matter of, uh, by, me, by any means necessary. Um, they don't really care about fairness, and they know that they're wrong. Um, they knew that they were wrong when they did it. Um, the difference is they felt as if they had all the cards in the deck. They felt as if it didn't matter because the federal courts weren't going to side with us. They felt as if it didn't matter because even if it went to the Supreme Court, by the time it gets to the Supreme Court, we'll probably be looking at redistricting again. They also thought that because the Voting Rights Act had been gutted for the vast majority of it, that it still wouldn't matter. So they thought they had all the cards. And that's why we were fighting so hard for the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act and fighting for something. Even when Republicans kept saying that we just wanted to ignore our jobs, no, we were fighting. And if you will remember, it was the Texas House that decided to leave. The Texas Senate did not break quorum. Both chambers could have broken quorum, but it was only one chamber that did. And so if people just better understood how powerful that man is and how he wages his power amongst, like, everyone, um, then they would understand kind of what was at play here. You know, Beverly Powell is somebody that historically has worked across the aisle. And so it seems like she was able to reach across the aisle to a colleague and say, listen, we both got messed up but you know what happened to my district was wrong by law. Please stand with me. And he was in a position where he had nothing to lose. And so he told the truth. The sad part is this happened in both chambers. This was the whole point of everything that they were doing. They knew they were wrong. They knew that we had 95% of our growth due to people of color. And they knew that they never intended to have any new majority minority districts in the state of Texas when it came to the congressional district. Uh, well, look, it is a continual battle that we see 
uh, all uh, across this country. Uh, and the bottom line is this here. Uh, the battle uh, continues. We saw today where uh, a court in Pennsylvania uh, threw out the, um, um, the ability to vote uh, for, for, for no excuse voting. Uh, Donald Trump is, uh, is gloating in this, but the Pennsylvania Supreme Court could very well overturn that decision. Uh, and so the battle continues in the courts, which is why we keep trying to explain to people, you gotta vote, because guess what? Those judges are also on the ballot as well. And when Republicans control the bench, then they can pass the laws as well. They're guaranteeing the laws will never get overturned because they control the bench. Absolutely. I mean, you bring up another good point. We had 40 to 60% so far of our vote-by-mail applications that have been thrown out in the state of Texas under the new law. 40 to 60%. Now, when we look at the fact that Trump lost, for those of those, those people that don't know, when we look at the fact that Trump lost, we saw that there was a lot of vote-by-mail. We saw that Democrats, especially in the midst of the pandemic, were, prefer were preferring to do vote-by-mail. And so when you see these sinister laws that were going through the state houses, then you better understand what the overall scheme was. Um, it's what we kind of have been yelling and screaming about since this summer, but so many people wanted to ignore us or ignore the fact that we continue to say that our democracy was crumbling right before our eyes. We see that we can't even rely on the courts. And so the only legislature that seemingly has the power to make a difference right now is the federal legislature. That's where the Democrats control the House, the Senate, as well as the executive position. That is where we have to get some sort of help. Because when you're looking at states like Georgia or Texas or Florida, it ain't coming out of the state houses. It's gonna have to come from the big house. And so we are hoping and praying that you know they come up with a creative way to work through this filibuster block that we have on the US Senate side because it's not about just Texas, it's about this entire country. And honestly, if you see the democracy in the United States start to fail, then what's gonna happen around this world? We are the ones that normally go in and tell everybody that, hey, we want a democracy, dictatorships and authoritarianism is, is wrong, right? It's not the way of the world. We're the ones that say that, but it's more like, um, don't pay attention to what I do, just pay attention to what I say. So we've got to do better, and I really need to see some courage on the federal level soon. Well, uh, and I wish uh, Arizona Senator Kristen Sinema and Senator Joe Manchin would wake the hell up and realize what's mm. going on across the country. Representative Jasmine Crockett, we appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, folks. Uh, faith leaders uh, across uh, the nation <laughs> oh, are so sorry. the Such NFL to move the 2023 Super Bowl from Arizona. Uh, as the state moves to enact voter restriction laws. In this letter, more than 200 faith leaders assigned will sit to the NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell after Arizona GOP lawmakers proposed a bill that would allow them to reject election results. According to the proposal, if legislators reject the results, a voter could then file in court to have the state hold a new election. In addition, if passed, the proposal would make other changes in the state's election procedures, including uh, eliminating Arizona's early voting by mail program and requiring election workers to hand count ballots. Uh, the, you know, we're seeing these type of utterly ridiculous things all across the country, Kelly. And again, what people need to understand, none of this is happenstance. This is a 
a heavily funded, clear, precise assault on voting by the Republican Party because they know if they can shave off 10, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 votes, they know they win Arizona in 2020. They win Georgia in 2020. They know that's what's going on. And so people have to understand why folks like us, why civil rights organizations are taking this so seriously because if they are successful, as Jasmine said, if they got the legislature and they got the courts, they can literally rig the elections in their favor, even if 55 or 60% of the people in the state vote Democrat, they'll still control all the levers of power. You're talking about how Republicans are saying if they can just get a certain number. I mean, we saw, uh, or at least heard, the footage of, of Donald Trump asking uh, the Georgia voting commissioner, however the title is, asking for the exact number of votes right. needed in order to beat Donald Trump. Look, just go get me 11,000. 11,405. Right. He ain't saved 12,000. Right. I was just like, that's yeah. specific. You know, so they, they know exactly which numbers that they need. But on top of that, what I found most interesting about this entire situation regarding the redistricting in Texas, uh, on top of the fact that this man just straight up said, yeah, we did it. And but in his rationale, um, in the article that I read, it says, quote, the Voting Rights Act says if you can create a district in which a and this is the important part, historically marginalized minority can elect a candidate of their choice, you must draw that district. So that is the clause that they used in order to make this happen and have it within legal boundaries. But what's more insidious about this is that it implies that white people are historically marginalized minorities in Texas. I just want that to sit in for a second and how absurd that sounds altogether. The fact that he was able to basically say that white people are historically marginalized and a minority in Texas, and that's why the redistricting needed to be the way it was. That's crazy. Uh, Matt, you're there in Texas. People, look, it, it, it is not, people go, oh, it's Texas. No, it's Texas. It's Arizona. It's Georgia. It's Florida. Mm -hmm. It's Alabama. It's Tennessee. It's Arkansas. It's anywhere where Republicans are controlled. They trying to pull the okie doke in New Hampshire. We know what time it is. We know what time it is. We know their game plan. We know exactly what they're doing. We see what they're doing. But if I may, Roland, if you'll indulge me, first, I want to um, shout out Rep Crockett, who's actually running for Congress and who is a fighter in this state. So she was too humble to say it. But we absolutely need to support that sister because we need her in the big house, as she said, fighting against this. Um, this is the game plan. Now, what I think is interesting is there's actually precedent for this as it relates to Arizona, because back in 1991, um, it's my understanding that they moved the Super Bowl from Tempe, Arizona, to California because Arizona uh, failed to recognize Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. So this kind of actually dovetails with our previous segment about money, right? Because here's the issue. The Super Bowl is going to generate millions of dollars. So telling the NFL, hey, unless you get this right and because of this uh, voting rights bill in Arizona, unless you move this, you know, you're going to have issues. That's how you hit people in the pocket and that's how you hold them accountable. And I'm hoping that it gets some traction because the 
uh, Arizona legislature, just like all these other legislatures, are straight up saying, we don't care about a certain group of people and there's nothing you can do about it. And here's our game plan to keep marginalizing them. We can't continue to allow that to happen. Michael. Yeah, Roland, this is another example of leveraging our economics to enforce our politics. But you only do this if you respect yourself. You only protect what you respect. You only protect what you respect. So they should definitely do this. And if, if and if the Super Bowl is not moved by 2023, when it takes place in Arizona, uh, we should not watch it. I haven't watched the NFL game since Colin Kaepernick left the league. So you know I'm down with this. Absolutely. So... Uh, when, when you just talked about Texas and the voter suppression bill in Texas, people need to go back and read the article that Ari Berman wrote for Mother Jones in about May of 2021 that dealt with Heritage Action, the Heritage Action Organization, which is the uh, sister organization to the Heritage Foundation. And Jessica Anderson, who's the CEO of Heritage Action, was caught on tape talking about how it was their organization that crafted the voter suppression bill in Georgia, Senate Bill 202, and then how they were crafting similar bills in uh, Republican state legislatures that are being pushed by Republicans. This stuff didn't just all happen by itself. It's, it's, it's orchestrated and funded. And then, they, and then once the bills pass the state legislature, then Heritage Action and other organizations put pressure on the governors to quickly sign the bills into law. So we have to understand how all this comes together. It, it, just like that's just like that effort is funded, the voter suppression, the the uh, fake attacks on critical race theory is funded by dark money groups as well. So we have to get smarter and 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 uh, leverage our economics and force our politics and launch economic withdrawal strategies against many of these corporations who are financing many of these Republicans who are voting against our own interests and, su and suppressing our votes. Absolutely. All right, folks, got to go to a break. We come back. Uh, we're going to give the information regarding the McDonald's HBCU scholarship deadline is February 28th. Trust me, y'all, $15,000 scholarship. There's seven of them. Uh, so uh, I don't think you want to miss that. I'll give you those details. And also the power of tutoring uh, in uh, our next segment as well. And a Florida state rep just lays it out over the issue of critical race theory. You're watching Roller Martin Unfiltered right here on the Black Star Network. Don't forget, download the Black Star Network app on all platforms, Apple phone, Android phone, Apple TV, Android TV, Roku, Amazon Fire, Samsung TV, Xbox as well. Uh, uh, so again, download on all the platforms. Uh, and then, of course, support us with our, uh, your resources. Join our Bring the Funk fan club. Every dollar you give to go support this show. Cash app is dollar sign, RM Unfiltered. PayPal, R Martin Unfiltered. Venmo is RM Unfiltered. Zale is rolling at rollingatsmartin.com. Rolling at Roland Martin unfiltered.com. I'll be right back.
Hi, this is Dr. Jackie Hood-Martin, and I'd like to ask you a question. Is your life teetering under the weight and stress and pressures of everyday life? Well, let me tell you, balance isn't easy. Join me each Tuesday on Black Star Network for Living a Balanced Life with Dr. Jackie. We'll laugh together, cry together, cheer ourselves on, and pull ourselves together, together. Learn tips and tools that will help you with the everyday stressors. So join me each Tuesday on Black Star Network for A Balanced Life with Dr. Jackie. We're all impacted by the culture, whether we know it or not. From politics to music and entertainment, it's a huge part of our lives. And we're going to talk about it every day right here on The Culture with me, Faraji Muhammad, only on the Black Star Network. I'm Bill Duke. This is Diallo Riddle. What's up, y'all? I'm Will Packer. I'm Chrisette Michelle. Hi, I'm Chaley Rose, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. <laughs> Folks, uh, if you have a student who's attending an HBCU, that's right, uh, and they're looking for financial assistance, uh, then they can apply for seven of these scholarships. Uh, I'm partnering with McDonald's in honor of the 115th anniversary of Alpha Phi Alpha, our seven founders, the seven jewels. That's why we're giving seven scholarships. They're $15,000 each. Now, again, uh, you must be enrolled full-time as an undergraduate, junior or senior at an HBCU during the 2022 2023 uh, academic school year. To apply, go to tmcf.org, tmcf.org. That's the Thurgood Marshall College Fund. Uh, and again, all the details are on there, all of the requirements, what you need, uh, you know, all the stuff is on there. Uh, the eligibility requirements is all there. The deadline again is February 28th, February 28th. And so we want uh, as many of you to uh, apply as possible uh, because this is about, of course, uh, keeping the students uh, in school. The reason I specifically asked to do this because there are a lot of students uh, who cannot afford to stay. People who get to their junior year, they don't have the resources. Again, now you have an opportunity uh, to land one of these seven $15,000 scholarships. Uh, and so we appreciate McDonald's and Thurgood Marshall Fund. Uh, we're all partnering uh, in this. Uh, and again, it is about uh, keeping uh, our students uh, in schools. Speaking about keeping our students in school, folks, uh, that is tutoring matters. And look, bottom line is this here. A lot of students don't necessarily get all they need in the classroom from teachers. And so as a result, uh, they've got to have some additional help uh, when it comes to their classes. So it's not complicated education. It's not complicated education. It's a tutoring business uh, that focuses on uh, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and standardized test preparation. The company uses an individualized and fun approach to tutoring. The virtual component allows students to access their services across the country. Joining us now from Dallas to share more information about the company is Jay Veal, founder and CEO of Inc. Education. Jay, glad to have you. Uh, and so how does this program work? How does this program work in terms of uh, tutoring? Is it all virtual? Do you have people who are appearing in person? How does it work? 
Yes, sir. So first of all, thank you so much for bringing, us, bringing me on, Roland. Great to see you. Uh, glad to be here. So Inc. Education was started actually in the middle of 2015 um, and is a program that encompasses tutoring services or education services uh, dedicated towards STEM, but we do all subjects uh, from K to from K to doctoral level, not just K to 12. We tutor students um, in at every level for everything. Um, they can get tutoring virtually and or in person. Um, and in, in addition to that, we don't do just the tutoring services, but we include uh, mentoring services. We do resume reviews and writing, literature reviews. Uh, ghostwriting for those that want to be authors, and a, a whole lot more services in this space. But we uh, tailor our services from K to doctoral um, in the general scheme of things. So you've been doing this for seven years, and so uh, how many students have you uh, worked with assisted? Yeah, so we have helped over 11,000 students now um, wow. in the education space. We, are, we have a success rate so far at a 95% success rate of our students of color uh, and all students at this point, but primarily students of color getting A's and B's in over 50 different content areas throughout the United States. Our team is very vast. We have about 85 people on our team throughout five to six cities in the United States between Dallas, Fort Worth, Chicago, DC, Austin, Atlanta, and Houston. We're a primary millennial-based team, so we relate more so to the students of today. But the main thing is this, uh, there's not a tutoring company that really focuses on building solid relationships. And in education, relationships is key for the students to be successful. We build relationships with the students and the parents first, include different stakeholders into the process of their learning. So parents, teachers, counselors, students, and our team to make sure everybody's on one page academically and pedagogically. We mentor our students and then provide them back-end support. So it's a 360-degree system that we utilize so students don't have anywhere else to go but up in success. And it's been proven through our numbers and our, our, our timeline throughout the six years um, why we're so successful in what we do as a, as a tutoring brand. All right, questions from our panel. So first up, Matt, what you got? <laughs> well, first, thank you for providing this service and, and congratulations on the extraordinary efficacy. Uh, my question was just how do people um, get connected with a tutor in particular? So obviously, if they find right. the service, what is the vetting process to determine, I guess, who would be best for their needs and precisely how to help them accomplish their goals? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. So first off, one of the things that we do differently um, in our, our process of hiring our uh, tutors on the team and our staff in general, we don't go through a hiring company. We don't go through a staffing company. But what we do is you cannot make it on our team unless you're recommended through a, uh, a senior level executive or a C-suite member on the team and or you're recommended internally through a regional manager. So that's one thing. Because of that, we tend to bring on very high quality individuals on our team who are tutoring consultants to work with. Now, once somebody comes into the fold and wants tutoring services, what we do is we have the consultation that's complementary uh, to our clientele or to our students and our parents. We dive deep into building that relationship with them, finding out what they need, what where their history has been, how we can utilize an ecosystem of support to make sure that they're successful. And then we pair them with a tutor on our team. And that pairing process is not just, hey, here's somebody on our team, boom, you're gonna work with this person. We take a lot of time to really figure out 
the, the strengths and weaknesses of the student, how we can move that along to the tutor that's going to work with them. Does their personality match? Can they mentor that man, that man, the young man or that young woman effectively to bring them up in our organization as, uh, as great students? Are they able to succeed in the timeline that we're working with? Do they want to do virtual? Do they want to do in-person? Do they have any learning disabilities? Like all those kinds of things are what we look for to not ensure, uh, to ensure building a relationship and to pair them with the right person. And once that's done, uh, we make sure that they're successful through learning plans. And then we check in with those, if they're at schools that uh, they have a teacher in, in the classroom, obviously, right? So we're gonna work with that teacher to say, hey, we know on the front end, you're working with them. And on the back end, we're also working with them. So what kind of things have you noticed um, that that student needs to work on? We'll take, we'll take that information and data, and then we'll make sure that on the back end, we have everything else covered. And we do check-ins with that teacher um, for tests and quizzes and all those things that, that they do on their end so we can effectively work with them and bring them to success. Kelly. Sure. So I'm sure you have, you know, countless testimonials about the success of your program. Oh, yeah. But if you can share, like, your favorite one of uh, a child who's been helped in the best way through this program and um, what they're doing now. Man. Um, I would say one one student actually attends uh, Prairie View A&M University right now. Um, I have actually uh, been tutoring this student. as uh, an awesome young female here in Dallas, who's from Dallas. And um, I've been tutoring her since eighth grade. So we've been bringing her up for the past, let's see, four, six years now within our organization. She actually came into the company not necessarily wanting to get tutoring or liking tutoring or really wanting to get that help. She's kind of a little bit resistant at first, but oftentimes when you kind of take that barrier down, let them know that you're really there for them and you really have their best interests at stake, the barrier gets broken down a little bit. So at this point, you know, she wasn't doing so well in school, you know, was making C's in classes or making D's in classes. And to this day now, uh, not only did she graduate high school, you know, with an A average and at this point loved tutoring and wanted to come, you know, every time we had a session, she was excited about it. Uh, she was writing notes down all the time. Um, her parents were very excited about the process and her grades were increasing when she graduated and then went to school. I was able to tutor her then for uh, test prep in the ACT and the SAT, she got into school with some scholarship money, and now she's in her junior year um, at Prairie View, um, wanting to be a veterinarian doctor. So she's making her way through all the science and STEM courses and still utilizes us uh, currently right now to make sure she's on the pathway to graduation there so she can effectively go uh, to med school. And matter of fact, last week she just hit us up and was like, hey, we need, I need statistics help now. So we continue to guide the pathway and bring our kids up, you know, within a five to six year, a five to six year uh, timeline sometimes. But once they're in, they love to stay. But our goal is we're not trying to make you stay into tutoring, but we want you to learn enough information and be so successful that you can then teach your peers and let them be successful as well. All right, Michael. Wow. All right, uh, this, this is a great uh, concept, uh, Jay. Uh, I was wondering, um, how do you what what type of support 
do you offer once they leave the program? I, I understand the example you just gave, and that's fantastic. But right. uh, is there a support mechanism once they graduate from the program? What type of um, uh, services do you offer or support? Absolutely. So once a student graduates um, either from high school, going to college and or college, going to the corporate world or to, you know, uh, the real world, as we say it, right, in education, mm -hmm. uh, we provide them <laughs> mentorship into the careers that they want to go into. The cool thing wow. about our organization is that we have multiple different people in different careers on our team. We have educators, instructional coaches, IT consultants, engineers. Shout out to Nesby. I was a part of Nesby. There's you know, a lot of folks that was in <laughs> Nesby out there. Right. Um, med school, uh, med school students. We have doctors and pharmacists. Like all of these different careers that we're able to encapsulate on the team, we can share uh, with the students. Hey. I've been able to be a, a young young person or a millennial working in this field. You can do this too, and here's how you get there. So one, letting them uh, share, uh, being able to share pathways with them on different careers that they can have and how they can get there. Two, if they still need tutoring support when they graduate high school and or college, they're still able to reach out to us and we become that person to work with them. Three, we're also a big brother and sister to these students. So oftentimes, it's not just about the education and the tutoring. Sometimes the student may right. come and say, you know what, I'm having an issue with bullying. I'm having an issue with, you know, with a disability that I have. I'm having an issue with communicating with some students that I have issues with. Like, I have issues with, you know, with, with social and emotional learning and those kinds of things. They're able to come to us. And it's not about just, hey, I, I, you're coming to see me during tutoring. But it's about, I, I'm here for you. I care for you as a person. I care for you as a student. And your family is part of our family. And, our, and us as tutors are part of your family. So when we're working with students, it's about an extension to the family. And that's right. what everybody that works with us calls us as. You know, we're, we're working with ink tutoring or ink education, but... We're also working with somebody who has now become an extension of our family. And we have a lot of um, uh, people that come to us who we, we tutor their whole family, from their kids to some of their cousins and the whole nine. So that's what makes the difference in kind of how we do that. I did a TED Talk on building relationships with students of color, and that's very important across the board. All right, what's the website? Uh, website is Inc. Education llc.com if anybody wants to come on the social media side of the house we have ink education on on instagram uh twitter is ink education llc you can find us on linkedin as well and basically any other platform out there um we ran this thing from knocking on doors we got it you know, as a one-man show to now we're the top you know minority-owned private tutoring company in the united states so all right all right jay bill appreciate it man thanks a lot uh, good luck with it Yes, sir. Thank you so much. Thank All right. You. Thank you so very much. I uh, want to thank uh, Matt, Kelly, and uh, Michael for being uh, on today's show. Uh, thank you so very much. I'll be sure to see you all next week. We're going to close the show out with this here, y'all, this uh, speech in Florida, their controversial Stop Woke bills. Oh, my goodness. It's passed through committee, but not without some pushback from a black Florida lawmaker, uh, Ramon Alexander. I wanted to play for y'all how he fought, uh, how he, you know, fought against this. Uh, there was still a two and a half hour discussion and debate. Uh, the committee uh, passed it on a 14 to 7 party line vote. But uh, he laid it down pretty good, and I love how he just broke it down. So we're going to end our show uh, showing y'all this. Check this out. 
actually was not going to debate, um, but the last um, debate was actually offensive. And, you know, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really sick of this stuff, you know? And it takes a lot to even mentally prepare to participate in this type of situation. Um, you know, I woke up uh, this morning early just to attempt to spiritually prepare myself. And so I hear about guilt and feeling a certain type of way. But you can only imagine how I feel just reading the bill. We can talk about subjectivity. We can talk about objectivity. But when it's all said and done, and I'm going to say this as professionally that I can, y'all have got to find another way to communicate to your base. You got to find another way to communicate. Representative Alexander, if you can keep it to the comment, to your comments to the bill and not direct it to the motivations of the members that are on this committee in either party, please. Thank you. Yes, Madam Chair, but I think the motivations is the reason why we're having the bill. I, I understand that that may be your belief and why we, you, th you think it's motivations, but we are not speaking about motivations. We are speaking about the content of the bill, and we have done a very good job of staying on the content of the bill during right. the conversation today. So I would appreciate you trying to stay in that space as well. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Chair. And I did that for a reason, to show you exactly what's going to happen in our school system. So let's, let's try this out, for example. Let's do... Uh, Let's go to the classroom, and the teacher talks about and explains what happened in slavery. They go through the basic details, started in 1619. They give some input about slavery, some basic textbook things. And then the inquisitive student raises their hand. They say, well, Madam Teacher, why did it happen? Why did slavery happen? And then they may even add, how did it happen? And then the teacher steps back, and now what does the teacher do? Because there's going to be some subjectivity and opinion in their view. When I was taught in school, I was taught that Lincoln freed the slaves. I was taught that there was a civil war, and that determined, and the civil war was fought because of slavery. Well, the civil war didn't start because of slavery. And do you know why I know that? Because I was taught how to critically think. I remember taking a religion class in college. You're talking about a young man that was baptized at an early age. Dad's chairman of the deacon board. Mother is the, the chairman of the Women's Congress for the Primitive Baptist Church. Go to church on Monday. Go to church on Wednesday. Go to church on Friday. Boy Scouts in the church. Every, every all-day church. And to sit in a religion class at my university and to hear different perspectives about the Old Testament and the New Testament, I had to develop the capacity to critically think for myself and determine what is and what's not. And so this is a huge waste of time. And I have to, all, I have to literally 
and I'm going to debate the bill on the floor, but I have to literally, in the merits of the bill, but I have to literally ask myself, is this really worth it? You know, we have, we have 29 physically constrained counties in Florida, and 28 of them vote the same way every single time. Think about it. People are struggling. They are living paycheck to paycheck. A lot of them have a paycheck. And so instead of addressing systemic poverty, instead of addressing all of these issues that impact people's quality of life, we are using these distraction tools because you know what? If race didn't matter, if all these issues didn't matter, we wouldn't have this bill. If race didn't matter, and this stuff didn't poll well to get people to come out and vote and cause a dadgum insurrection, we wouldn't have these type of bills. And so we do it over and over again, and we find the next boogeyman to distract from the reality that 28 of these 29 counties keep voting for you instead of addressing the issues that impact people's quality of life every day. I don't want to do this, but I don't think you can handle the truth. I do not like having conversations like this. It eats me up on the inside because I know there's some admirable good people over there. And half of y'all are uncomfortable with voting for this bill yourself, but you don't want to get primaried in your election. And so, I, no, I'm going to stop because maybe, maybe I am inappropriate right now, but I'm going to speak the truth. The last thing is, for a representative to say that race doesn't matter. What ozone layer are you on? Representative Alexander, those comments are inappropriate. Leader. No, it's not inappropriate. Because his, his, his comments, his calls, his, no, 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 please, please, please. Alexander, uh, listen, you his comments are inappropriate. Uh, Representative Alexander, please. But my question is, I'm going to stop please. here. Why didn't you stop him when he made his comments? His comments were just as offensive to me than my comments are to you. I'll stop. But this is, this, this is, this, this is. Representative Alexander. No, 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 no. We are done with debate. Thank I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. And, and I won't say anything. I, I, I'm going to end it here. And, and I respect you with the utmost respect. I'm going to stop. Let me say this. We are better than this. I love America with all my heart and soul. And in spite of everything that has happened in America, I'm here because I love this country. I went to the Florida American Legion Boys State Program. And the mission of that program is for God and country. And every time I stand up and I say the Pledge of Allegiance, I do it with pride and I do it with dignity. Every time I sing the Star Spangled Banner, I do it because I love our country. When I became a student senator at Florida and University, the first bill that I introduced as a student senator was to make sure that the American flag was posted in the student senate chamber and that we recited the Pledge of Allegiance. Because after my first two meetings, I realized that the student senate did not have the American flag posted in the student senate chamber. And we did not do the Pledge of Allegiance. So what I'm trying to tell you is, is that I'm not anti-American, but I am an American. 
and my voice matters just as much as your voice. My opinion matters just as much as your opinion. My reality matters just as much as your opinion, and you can't handle the truth. You cannot handle the truth. Representative Ramon Alexander will be on Roller Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network next week. All right, folks, uh, don't forget, uh, we've got some fantastic shows debuting next week. Uh, it's right, uh, beginning on Monday, folks, it's going to be uh, great. Uh, of course, uh, Roger Muhammad, his daily show uh, will be uh, 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern. We'll also have uh, Deborah Owens' show, Wealthy You show, uh, of course, uh, Dr. Reverend Dr. Jackie Hood Martin show, uh, Balanced Living, and then, of course, The Black Table with Dr. Greg Carr. Looking forward to that. And don't forget, folks, uh, we also have uh, another edition of Rolling with Roland. That's right. Next week, Bill Duke uh, is going to be joining us, and we're looking forward to that as well. So, folks, a lot of things going. Real quick, Hampton University becomes the first HBCU to join the Colonial Athletic Association after William Harvey, president of Hampton, released the statement sharing the benefits of joining the CAA, saying it's going to be the next step in the evolution of Hampton University athletics. Several institutions of the CAA are located in their geographical footprint, which means that our student athletes will continue to spend less time traveling and more time in classes on campus. Uh, of course, they're going to be playing with uh, a variety of institutions uh, that are not HBCUs. And I'm hearing some folks are not too happy about that. So we'll uh, be talking more about that as well. All right, y'all. Again, uh, as we always do, we end our show on Friday with our Bring the Funk fan club. Didn't have phone calls today uh, because uh, just sort of some technical issues, but we'll have the calls next week. That's it. I'll see you guys uh, on Monday. Stay safe. Uh, stay well. Put the mask on. Get vaxxed. Social distance. We want to see you around. Y'all take care. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.